This podcast is brought to you by the University of Aberdeen. Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Culture and Everyday Life podcast produced by the Elphinstone Institute at the University of Aberdeen. The Elphinstone Institute is a centre for the study of ethnology, folklore and ethnomusicology with a research and public engagement remit covering the North East and North of Scotland. Through interaction with researchers and practitioners, this podcast explores cultural phenomena in everyday life. So onwards to the David Buchan Lecture. David Buchan was a folklorist from Aberdeen here, went to Aberdeen Grammar and uh, had a distinguished career across in North America mainly, although he taught at the University of Stirling for some years at a Scottish Studies program that he started there. But he was head of department in Newfoundland Memorial University and he started out actually at the University in Amherst in Massachusetts where he did his dissertation uh, on the ballad and the folk, which is about an extraordinary singer, Anna Brown or Anna Gordon, who lived in Humanity Manse just down the high street here in the 18th century, and she provided a number of uh, wonderful ballads from Deeside to Walter Scott, and she, uh, he published a few of them, and she was uh, very annoyed by that because he didn't ask her permission. Uh, so we tend to ask people's permission before we publish things, having learned from Walter Scott's mistake. Uh, but at any rate, this is a pioneering study of oral tradition and how people remember songs, how people bring their creativity to bear. Uh, and their memory on uh, reproducing songs from their youth. She learned these songs up Deeside from her youth. She was married to a professor here at the university, very capable, very literate, but also possessed of incredible, um, wonderfully uh, complete sets of words for these, for these ballads. And this um, reminds me of, of when Alan Lomax, the American song collector, came to Scotland. He said, nowhere have I found <coughs> singers of oral songs who are very bookish but who are, but and also bookish people who know the most beautiful oral versions of songs so the scottish tradition of education did not get in the way of oral tradition and to think of them as opposites and <coughs> and uh, competing with each other is a definite mistake because people have both people are able to read they're able to write and they can have oral traditions as well they're symbiotic they're su- they're supportive mutually supportive traditions, as David Atkinson says. So, we'll move on with today's Bachan lecture uh, with Amy Skillman, and um, as I said at the beginning, this is a a topic that's dear to our hearts because we are involved with the community and we want to, to some extent, be driven by what the community wants and needs and and, uh, so as not to impose our ideas of what we think Northeast culture is or what it should be used for. Um, so if we can create projects in partnership with people rather than impose things, uh, then I think we have, you know, we're heading towards cultural sustainability, and I'm sure Amy will explain how it's really done. So, Amy. Thank you. I have to switch to my... So, that one? That one? Should be that one. There we go. Okay. Well, thank you, Tom. Um, I am going to talk to you today about a number of projects that I've been working on, and I could spend an hour or four talking about each one. So I'm actually going to read what I've written in order to stay within a a reasonable time frame. 
Um, so it's truly an honor to have been selected for this year's David Buchan Lecture. It's been a gift to be here with you. First, because I've always wanted to travel to my paternal grandmother's homeland. And second, to have had the opportunity to meet with so many students and um, who are doing such exciting work and to hear about your work. It's been really fun. And I also have appreciated the opportunity to reflect on my work and put it into the context of this concept of community self-esteem. <clears throat> As my title suggests, this presentation is more about action than theory. I'm interested in how folklorists use their theoretical frameworks and skills to advocate for culture in a way that builds community well-being and self-esteem and works toward cultural equity on the planet. <clears throat> now, before coming, I did a little research on David Buchan to know more about the man, and I actually identified a couple of other David Buckins that was really interesting. One is a sailing captain and explorer, and um, but um, I discovered, uh, you know, so I discovered at least three intriguing men by that name, but found very much in common with your David Buchan the ballad scholar with eclectic and wide-ranging interests who understood the power of narrative and the benefit of an interdisciplinary approach to culture. <clears throat> As I hope my presentation will demonstrate, these are the, at the foundation of my work. So thus, I'm going to begin with a couple of stories. My first job after graduate school was at the Craft and Folk Art Museum in Los Angeles managing a project designed to identify master traditional artists in various Los Angeles neighborhoods and to bring them into the museum to display and demonstrate their work. This experience gave me the opportunity to do field work in Los Angeles where a growing Southeast Asian community, mostly Hmong, Vietnamese, and Cambodian, were trying to make a home for themselves after the Vietnam War. Now, as some of you know, I had been particularly impacted by the Vietnam War. I did not believe we should be there, and I demonstrated against it when I could. I wore a POW bracelet and uh, watched with indescribable sorrow in April 1975 as our television stations broadcast the fall of Saigon. I was deeply moved by the fear and the chaos so clear on the faces of those being left behind as people were escaping. So it is no wonder that given the opportunity to conduct fieldwork in Los Angeles, I gravitated toward the Southeast Asian community. The first woman I interviewed was a Hmong refugee from Laos. <clears throat> pa Yang was in her 40s and had very little English literacy at the time, so we conducted my interview through her daughter, as is often the case when working with refugees and immigrants. I will never forget walking up to her front door in the densely packed urban neighborhood and seeing the line of pairs of shoes on her front step. I removed mine, knocked, and was invited into her home, a long, simple row house. Oh, it works. There she sat in the light of the only window in the front room, working on an exquisite piece of reverse applique embroidery. As I talked with her through her daughter, I learned about the meaning of the symbols in the work, how these small, discreet objects of women's work embody the history and culture of her clan and an entire community recently displaced by war. The power of her artistic traditions 
to sustain and carry that culture across the world shaped my work for the next 40 years. That experience also shaped my future collaborations with museums. When we invited Payang to show her work at the Craft and Folk Art Museum later that year, she did not come alone. Instead, she invited many of her friends who also do needlework to join her and to share the attention and the esteem that the event was providing to her. Together, they created a virtual crazy quilt of all the embroidery work on the walls, the tables, and just about every surface in the museum that was available to them. And in that very simple action, <clears throat> Payang converted a moment of personal self-esteem into one that accrued to her entire community. In her book, Indigenous Methodologies, Margaret Kovach expands on the characteristics of qualitative research to propose a decolonizing methodology that encourages us to ensure a research design grounded in local epistemology to see stories as methodology and to plan our work with expectations of giving back to the community. When I think back to that experience with Payang, I see very early lessons in honoring Hmong aesthetic sensibilities, in paying attention to local ways of knowing. I would have hung those embroidery pieces as individual works of art in nice, neat, straight lines, but she and her community preferred the collage effect with its visual pop and equitable attention to all the makers and their clan affiliations. I also see an early lesson in considering how my resources and research might give back by addressing larger issues in a community. I was singling out one person as master artist, a convention of the Western museum world, but that wasn't what was important to her. She sought recognition for her entire community. Several years later, I was invited to meet a Cambodian weaver who had recently settled in Pennsylvania. On my first visit to her home, she was barely noticeable in the room, sitting quietly in the shadows while we talked with her daughter. Bunem had been a master weaver in her native Cambodia, known throughout the region as the person to go to for beautiful silk fabrics used to make traditional and ritual dress. Her weaving held the community together, sustaining her culture and fostering well-being through cultural identity. Families traveled for miles to buy her weavings for their daughter's weddings, yet in the United States, where her community was dispersed across a larger area and where they were focused on becoming American, she was little more than a shadow in the room. <clears throat> no longer did her community seek her out. They were buying Western bridal gowns um, and ordering silk from weavers in the refugee camps where their hard-earned dollars went much farther. On a visit to the State Museum with a church volunteer, she saw a loom and her eyes brightened. I can do that, she told the volunteer. That volunteer saw an opportunity to make a difference. So with her own resources, she, she found a Swedish loom and encouraged Bunem to begin weaving. <clears throat> now, I don't know if you know anything about Cambodian weaving, but Bunem tried really hard to weave on that particular loom, but it was nothing like the loom that she was used to, which is a 16-foot long loom that can manage you know, thousands of tiny silk threads that make up the dense, shimmering fabric. 
Over time, with connections, a little funding, and the support of the State Museum, we were able to have a loom made for her, and she put it in her basement, which was under the house in Cambodia, in the basement in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And she slowly began to weave again. Eventually, she started teaching weaving to younger Cambodian Americans. That recognition spread, and families started coming to her house again to purchase silk. Within five years, this shy woman received a National Heritage Award from the National Endowment for the Arts, the highest honor our nation gives to traditional artists. She came into full bloom on that stage during the award concert, charming even Charles Kuralt, a well-known journalist um, as, who was acting as the MC. As her daughter told me, her weaving made her feel alive because she was finally contributing to her family's well-being again. This is the power of traditional arts. Experiences like these have led me to the project I want to talk about today. As the director of a graduate program in cultural sustainability, I am especially interested in this idea of community self-esteem and the connection between self-esteem and sustainability. I worry about how we define these terms, how we gain support for them, and how we measure them. However, I believe we cannot sustain our culture if the members of that culture lack a sense of belonging. Many have argued, Peter Block and Bell Hooks among them, that a sense of belonging is at the core of self-esteem. And fostering a sense of belonging is at the core of what folklorists do. As Pai Yang demonstrated to me so long ago, community self-esteem begins with individual self-esteem. The project I want to share with you today took place over several years and is still ongoing. This is deeply engaging work that requires a commitment to the long haul. My organization at the time had pioneered two landmark conferences on refugee arts, creating opportunities for state arts councils and state refugee resettlement organizations across the country to interact for the first time and to find opportunities for collaboration. After so much work at the state and regional level though, I was ready to focus some attention on my community. Since my, really, my earlier research had involved Southeast Asian artists, I decided to begin with refugee women artists, to begin with the familiar. I started asking around, and every time I turned a corner, someone mentioned Ho Tang Nguyen and the work she was doing with refugees. So I finally called her up and we set up a time for lunch. At the time, Ho Tang was the domestic violence liaison for the local YWCA. Her job was to connect refugee women to the services that the Y provided. Through her, I was hoping to find a connection to artists within the community and to help those artists apply to our state arts apprenticeship grant program. I believed that nurturing a practice of traditional arts might provide an avenue for expression and perhaps recovery and healing for these women. This belief was partially fueled by a potent statement from an Ethiopian traditional artist, Tesfai Tesima, who said, <clears throat> what people must understand is that this art is not just decoration. It forms and shapes the human being. If you can come from a country where children are starving to death, then you come to this country, which is so rich, you simply cannot explain why children are shooting each other. The reason must be that they don't have their culture. 
Your culture makes you think like a human being. So I was hoping to use the resources of our grant funding programs to support individual artists. Hotang was looking for ways to create leadership opportunities for women struggling with resettlement and all its domestic issues. It, is, it was not difficult for me to find common ground with this mission. What Hotang understood intuitively, and Elaine, Elaine Lawless has demonstrated for us through her work with domestic violence shelters in Missouri, is that standard service programs for victims of domestic violence are not enough. In fact, in some cases, they are self-perpetuating. This is more true when domestic violence happens in immigrant and refugee families. Language barriers, fear of deportation, and lack of understanding about what constitutes domestic violence in American culture all conspire to keep women from reporting these incidents. Once they do, few programs have someone like Hotang on staff who can mediate the cultural and linguistic maze of the American system. So the opportunity to work with these women in ways that strengthen their sense of who they are and, their pla and place value on the skills they bring to our country and our communities and to honor their experiences easily fits into cultural sustainability work. So after our lunch conversation in May of 2001, Hotang invited 10 women from diverse backgrounds to her home to discuss ways they might work together to better address their needs. She invited me to attend and to talk about our grant programs. As we sat in her backyard sipping cool lemonade, I asked the women, what are some of the most important art forms you have brought with you to this country? Unanimously, do you have an idea what they said? Cooking. Huh? Cooking. Cooking. Our food, they said. Now, two things struck me about this response. First, that they understood their food to be an art form. And second, that they all agreed it was one of the most important aspects of their culture. Now, let me interject here that, uh, to say that Hotang and I just offered a Story Circle workshop for attendees at the fourth World Conference of Women's Shelters in Taiwan a few weeks ago. And I asked that room the same question and was pleasantly surprised to receive the same answer 18 years later. And now you have confirmed it. And I would like to acknowledge that Hotang Wen is with me in the room. You might be able to see who she, what, who she is. Um, <laughs> she is my dear friend and my collaborator on all of this work. And, um, and we were together in Taiwan, and so she's just joined me uh, to come here this week. <clears throat> so among the women in Hotang's backyard that day, this immediately triggered the sharing of all kinds of stories about food. And someone said, we should do a cookbook. So for about six months, we collected more than 100 recipes from refugee and immigrant women and compiled them into a cookbook. The resulting publication, however, is not just a cookbook. Many recipes include a story from the contributor about the meaning of the recipe in her life. The stories highlight the traditions, artistic practices, rituals, or customs surrounding the preparation and presentation, as well as the growing of food and dishes. Some recipes are prepared solely for the celebration of a birthday and have accompanying songs and surprises to delight the recipient. Some are only prepared by men. 
Readers discover that egg rolls are made in at least six different Asian cultures and have specific ingredients that distinguish them from each other. I learned that most Uzbeki women know at least five or six different ways to prepare pilaf and that many pilafs are only prepared on special holidays. Mrs. Galperino's wedding pilaf, handed down from mother to daughter for several generations, for instance, includes ingredients that have special meaning for the bride and groom. Now, as folklorists, we understand the importance of food, food traditions in our communities. As advocates for cultural equity and community self-esteem, we find value in making these stories more publicly known to break down the barriers created by a fear of the unknown, and food is a great way to do that, as we know. <clears throat> we launched the cookbook at a public luncheon where the women not only prepared and shared their food, but many were encouraged to stand up at the microphone and say a few words about their food, their culture, or their experiences. This was Hotang's way of fostering confidence and leadership among the women. Within a year, we had created a nonprofit organization called PERWIN, the Pennsylvania Immigrant and Refugee Women's Network. The mission of PERWIN is to honor and enhance the lives of refugee and immigrant women and to empower them to live to their fullest potential. Perwin is committed to, quote, celebrating the rich cultural heritage of our communities while honoring our differences and similarities. But, and I love this quote, by teaching ourselves to value and understand our own cultures, we learn the most important lessons of leadership, self-esteem, tolerance, and collaboration, end quote. Not all of Perwin's members came out of the domestic violence program, nor has domestic violence continued to be a prominent topic of conversation in the group. Rather, these women saw a need for all newly arriving women to gain the skills and self-confidence required for a successful transition to a new life. The support and impact for victims of domestic violence is understood among the women, and each woman has become a role model for the others in different ways according to her abilities and resources. Today, its members are women from all, of, all over the world who have made Pennsylvania their home. With Hotang at the helm, my role has been as a board advisor, though I have been cajoled to write grants, emcee portions of their public events, drive members to meetings, pick up supplies, develop and manage programs, and even direct the Reader's Theater. Obviously, it's very hard to say no to Hotang. But this is also an important way for folklorists to work. If we are truly hoping to make a difference in the communities that matter to us, we have to be willing to dig in where needed. Perwin now has a board of directors composed of refugee and immigrant women. It took 18 years of volunteer work, but it now has its own office with paid staff and archive a kitchen and meeting space. They have developed successful grant writing skills within the group, produced 19 annual public luncheons to showcase their foodways, and launched the Story Circle Project to collect and share their personal narratives. Those narratives have formed the basis of an exhibition, a short film, and two theater projects. Building on the success of the food stories, the women began meeting regularly for what we called story, uh, story circles. 
The more stories we shared, the more eager we became to share those stories broadly, to find ways to change public opinion about their contributions to our community. So we created the Story Project. With funding from the state's local history grant program, we identified almost 30 women with a diverse range of experiences, histories, and cultures to, partic to participate. From the Bahamas to Vietnam, the final group of participants reflects diverse cultures, ages, social class, occupations, and religions. We developed an interview protocol focusing on the role of women in community life and the changing roles of women in diaspora. My original plan was to train some of the women to do the interviews, but they ended up wanting me to do that. So, um, so I did, and even though that wasn't my original plan, it actually offered some good continuity that we might not have had otherwise. The monthly, the monthly story circles have given these women the opportunity to practice their English and share common experiences. They vary in attendance from three to 18, but each month the women are fully engaged in hearing each other's stories. And of course, there's always food. The format is simple. We pick a topic for the month and simply throw out a question. In the beginning, I facilitated these conversations, but the women have taken over the process and made it their own. They are eager to talk, finding more in common than they expected. It has been inspiring to watch as one story begets another in this circle of women drawing closer together in friendship and understanding. As Giovanna Del Negro writes in Looking Through My Mother's Eyes about the sharing of stories among her mother's Italian immigrant friends, quote, in the span of several hours over coffee, amaretto cookies, and liqueur, the kitchen was transformed into a dramatic stage where issues of motherhood, work, immigration, and marriage were examined through stories. The simple act of talking revealed a complex tapestry of meanings." End quote. In our case, the simple act of talking was creating a sense of belonging many of the women had not experienced in a long time. With their permission, we recorded and transcribed the interviews and story circles. Eventually, we brought in an exhibit curator, a filmmaker, and a theater educator to one of the story circles. They each had read some of the transcriptions and offered recommendations about how, about how the stories might best be presented in their respective media, exhibitions, theater, and film. I thought we would choose one. I would write the grants to fund it, and that would be our big project. But these tenacious women wanted to do all three, so we did. They, and they have become intertwined into a multi-year project. So the heart of the exhibition, entitled Our Voices, Stories of Immigrant and Refugee Women, combined beautiful black and white portrait photographs with short stories chosen by the women from among several excerpted uh, from their interviews. Let me tell you a little bit about our process because I, th I think it is in the process, as Tom talked about earlier, rather than the product that we were able to build ownership a sense of belonging and individual self-esteem. Using the method of reciprocal ethnography, we involve the women in reading, editing, <clears throat> and shaping